From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Sitting in today for Tony is our own Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships for Family Research Council. Well, good afternoon and happy Friday to you all. I'm your host, Sarah Perry, on this, the 29th of May, 2020. On today's very full edition of Washington Watch, we've got some breaking news on the World Health Organization. And the White House continues to prioritize all Americans with its distribution of COVID relief funds. Yesterday, the Trump administration announced that it's setting aside $10 billion of additional Paycheck Protection Program funds so that small business owners in all communities have access to the capital they need to keep American workers employed. I'll be joined by Ashley Bell, Entrepreneurship Policy Advisor for the White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council. In my second block, President Trump on Thursday ramped up his efforts against censor-happy social media companies by signing an executive order that aims to curtail their legal liability protections two days after Twitter slapped fact-check labels on a pair of his tweets. I'll talk to Craig Parshall, special counsel to the American Center for Law and Justice and founder of the John Milton Project for Digital Free Speech about the executive order, censorship, and a workable solution to big tech bullying. At the bottom of the hour, protests have erupted across the country over the death of George Floyd, a black man who was suffocated when he was pinned to the ground by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. On Friday, just today, a few hours ago, Minnesota state officials said that Chauvin has been arrested and taken into custody on charges of third-degree murder and manslaughter. I'll be joined by former police officer and FRC president Tony Perkins, who will have his thoughts on the situation. And in my last block, the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights found a Connecticut policy which enabled male students identifying as female to participate in athletic competitions against females was in violation of Title IX after several months-long investigation. I'll be joined by Doreen Denny, VP of Government Relations for CWA, and Christina Holcomb, Legal Counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom, who will have their thoughts. A reminder, our podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. TonyPerkins.com is the website for today's show. You'll find resources and links on all of the stories that we'll be covering here. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah P. Perry or Tony at T. Perkins. And for those of you who have already downloaded the Stand Firm app, make sure you have the latest update. Go into the Apple Play Store, the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, and download the most recent version. We've rebuilt it, and it's better than ever. You can listen to Washington Watch on the go through that app. Well, we've got some breaking news as we come on the air tonight. President Trump has just announced that the U.S. is terminating its relationship with the embattled World Health Organization over its failure to enact reforms in the face of concerns over whose handling of the coronavirus pandemic. At the same time, the Trump administration has recently announced that it's setting aside $10 billion of additional paycheck protection funds so that small business owners and underserved communities can keep American workers employed. Joining me now is Ashley Bell, Entrepreneurship Policy Advisor for the White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council and Small Business Administration Regional Administrator. Ashley, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to speak with your listeners today. 
Well, I got to tell you good news right out of the gate on the World Health Organization. The U.S. had been the top contributor to the agency to the tune of about $450 billion a year. China, meanwhile, only buying in at $50 million a year. But, you know, this is an agency that made no bones about its particular left-wing bias, using American tax dollars to advance abortion services, instructing humanitarian workers on performing abortions, using training books, a radical definition of sex to include gender identity. Listen, they were no friend of the United States, and they were ultimately at cross-purposes with the president's own pro-life and pro-family agenda. So I'm encouraged that not only has this relationship been severed, but then at the same time, almost simultaneously, he's dedicated this extra money, $10 billion, to a paycheck protection program that's going to benefit underserved communities. This is a president who knows how to spend money well, isn't it? Well, I can tell you the president wants to make sure that every tax dollar is spent in a way that reflects America's values, and mm-hmm. he's led on every effort domestically and foreign. Uh, and I and I think that this has been particularly important because the president campaigned and he started off his administration focusing on a repeatedly the forgotten Americans, the Americans mm-hmm. that where they live in rural areas or urban areas that have been forgotten about by past administrations and the past efforts. And I think the president's been truly focused on making sure that these tax dollars to help America recover reach everybody. And working with CDFIs, this is important because they're going to reach rural areas as well as urban areas, those places that they don't have a lot of uh, pathways to access the capital. And we're going to see this really make some big strides in those hard-to-reach parts of America when it comes to capital, because CDFIs are mission-based institutions. These are institutions that are either helping out rural areas, they're helping out women and minority-owned businesses. These are folks that not only lend money, but they also have technical assistance in place to help people understand how to get access to the capital and how to spend it wisely. Now, CDFIs, these are community development financial institutions. So are these different than the bigger banks? These are more locally controlled oh, financial institutions? Yeah, absolutely. So so what the president noticed, and this just speaks to his, his leadership style, you know, when the PPP program came out, the, it's been in waves. The, the first wave that came was gobbled up extremely quickly, and everybody mm-hmm. that could afford to hire somebody to figure it out, they hired them and they got their money. And so wave two, what the president wanted to have happen is he told SBA and the Treasury, look, we got to make sure that everybody has access to these funds, so don't put it in one big pot. Split it up into three pots. You have one pot for the big banks, another pot for the mid-tier banks, $10 billion and below. But let's keep a separate pot for a billion and below for all those smaller credit unions uh, mm-hmm. in these communities. And by doing that, that is when we saw – the this money reach these small businesses, these mom and pop shops, these sole proprietors. Uh, that's when you saw that happening. But to go even further, the president realized that because that was working so well, we needed to make sure that we set aside CDFI money because the difference between a CDFI and a normal bank is that the CDFI, when you go in there and you get a loan, they also are going to say, hey, let us get you a counselor to figure out, you know, I know that you're a one-person shop. You don't have a CFO. You're your own accountant. You're the secretary. Nice. You're the janitor. You're the CEO. Let's get you a counselor to help you figure out how to make sure you get this money and how to spend it wisely and accurately so that you survive this crisis and you also end up with a more organized, better organization, even stronger than you were going in. That's why this is so important because he understands that CDFIs serve low-income areas, but they do more than just loan money. They actually help people be better 
at business. And what you and I know, and the president understands this, just because someone is a great engineer, a great cook or chef, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're also good at business. It means that they're good at what they're good at, and they work really hard at being the best at that. But how do we make sure they also have the technical skills so they can be good at business? Because those are the businesses that are going to survive this crisis, and the president wants everyone to have opportunity to succeed. I really, really like that about this administration because this particular relief package, and of course, none of us could have foreseen that we'd be five, six months into the new year and we'd be dealing with a pandemic that would be affecting every aspect of our lives here as Americans. But this is a president who just understands so well that you don't just provide the temporary relief, you don't just band-aid the problem, but you put in place the actual structure, the mechanism to be able to repeat success and ensure success for the long term. So he's really in Invested in these communities, and that's extremely encouraging for us. Well, you know, this is giving this money to the CDFIs is teaching people how to fish. It's not just giving them a fish. Right. This is we're going to show you how to be better businesses, and and we're going to use this crisis as an also an opportunity to create stronger enterprises because the president knows that the the reason that we have such a great economy and unemployment for African-Americans, for Hispanic-Americans was so low Mm -hmm. is because the businesses in those communities were hiring because they were growing at a rapid rate. So this way, by planting these seeds and giving this money to these communities, these businesses are going to come back, they're going to survive, and they're going to be able to hire even more people when we when we break a new record for how great this economy will be because they're even better and they're more efficient than they were prior. They know how to spend their money, know how to leverage debt and use capital. That is going to make an enormous difference to even uh, not only build back this economy but see even lower uh, unemployment in these, in these, in these communities. Well, and again, we've already seen hallmarks that the S&P, for example, jumping 2% the other day, which was its pre-March record. So we know that the economy is going to come back. It's tough to be a president in a situation like this, but particularly for low-income and minority communities. Talk a little bit about the disparate impact that something like COVID-19 has on them. Well, and and the president has acknowledged this, and and it's something that, um, when, when he talks about forgotten communities, it's because everything I'm about to tell you that is harmful disproportionately to, to minorities when it comes to healthcare and economic uh, impact of this COVID virus, these are issues that were ignored for mm-hmm. generations and generations. And this president is hitting them dead on. So when it comes to, you know, especially the economic side, it starts with a lot of these these businesses didn't have access to capital and they didn't have banking relationships or they were underbanked. And for a lot of people, they thought they had a banking relationship because they may have an app that may have a, a a bank on it. But just because you deposit money in the bank doesn't mean you have a relationship. And I think this is where the president is saying, look, I want everyone to have a relationship with a financial institution because this is how you grow your business. Right. So having a relationship means that they took a chance on you. I could see you every day walking to work, and I can know you, and I can say hello, but that doesn't mean we have a relationship. Right. It doesn't start until a bank says, you know what? I'm going to take a chance on you. So the president is saying by using this money with CDFIs, he says, look, I want CDFIs to start loaning money to people who didn't have a loan before, but I also want them to be your customers afterwards. 
maintain that relationship, bet on their future, mm. bet on the fact that they're going to succeed because for generations before, they've never had this relationship before. But we're going to start with a credit union in the CDFI in an urban area or a rural area, and we'll get you on the track to learning how to leverage the cash that you're making and, and to, to build a bitter, bigger and better business. And if you can create relationships with financial institutions in low-income areas for these businesses, you will break cycles of poverty. You'll break cycles mm-hmm. of stagnant growth because you'll see these businesses go from hiring hiring two and three people to having credit and, and it can leverage that to hire five and ten people and can grow. And you couple that with technical assistance. This is how this president is laying the groundwork. And I'm going to tell you, on top of that, what he's done is in many of these communities where these CD8-5s are located, they're also opportunity zones. These are the exact same zones that in the Tax Cuts Act 2017, where people who see these businesses growing can now take their capital gains. Like you said, the stock market is is, is still ticking away and and going up. People can take their unrealized capital gains now and have a plethora of opportunities to invest in low-income areas to opportunity zones as well. Oh, how tremendous. You know, that really is, if you think about it, that is one of the legs of the American dream is really small business ownership and operation, being able to build something from the ground up, pass it down to your kids or your grandkids. This is really such an encouraging development because it's a use of funds in such a way that really lifts the tide for all boats in these communities. Very encouraging. Ashley Bell has been my guest, Entrepreneurship Policy Advisor at the White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk big tech. The executive order out from President Trump's White House has indicated that he is willing to take aim at bullying. We'll talk with Craig Parshall, who is special counsel to the American Center for Law and Justice, coming up next on Washington Watch. As coronavirus restrictions begin to ease, many Americans are grappling with how to adapt to the changing times. The last few months have transformed how worshipers think about church and how they are fed spiritually. While many churches are conducting services through live streams, drive-in services, and other means, questions still remain. What practical steps can we take? Are current restrictions appropriate? Do these restrictions violate the Constitution or religious freedom protections? Family Research Council has a new publication discussing religious liberty issues and offering practical guidelines for how churches and houses of worship can begin to operate as our country opens back up. Visit frc.org slash church guidelines to view this resource and learn more. As always, visit frc.org slash church for our full list of resources for churches in the time of coronavirus. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin, 
has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Stay in f- Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry, sitting in for Tony Perkins. Yesterday, President Trump ramped up his war with social media companies by signing an executive order aimed at curtailing their legal liability protections. This followed on the heels of Twitter slapping fact-checked labels on a pair of his tweets relating to fraud and mail-in ballots. Joining me now to break down the details of the order is constitutional and regulatory law expert Craig Parshall. He is special counsel to the American Center for Law and Justice, the founder of the John Milton Project for Digital Free Speech, and someone I'm particularly partial to, as he also just happens to be my father. Dad, welcome to Washington Watch. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm honored, uh, daughter. Uh, look, th- th- you and I both know this is a hugely important, timely issue. Yes. Somewhat complicated, but uh, when you break it down, it, it, it's very simple math about what's going on here. So the executive order yesterday made mention of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, and that seems to be sort of the fulcrum of the entire debate over whether or not social media companies are platforms or publishers. Can you break that down for us? Yeah, in fact, that's the simple math issue that I'm talking about. Section 230, uh, well-intentioned as it was in 1996, was added to the Communications Decency Act, Obviously, that act had the purpose of making sure the Internet uh, was a a relatively clean and family-friendly place for families and children and all of us. In the midst of the CDC uh, law, or the CDA law, there was a Section 230 that had the uh, intent of creating an unencumbered innovational space for Silicon Valley companies to grow without fear of lawsuits. So what it said is, we're counting on you, big tech companies, to clean up the Internet on your own voluntarily, mm-hmm. and we're also uh, hoping that this will be a free and open, free expression platform for ideas and discourse. And in return, we're going to give you an extraordinary break. We're going to say nobody can sue you except in very limited situations, almost total blanket civil immunity from lawsuits. They've enjoyed that since 1996. Unfortunately, it's backfired. Not only has there not been uh, a complete removal of indecency on the Internet for kids, but even worse, uh, we see these big tech companies using their free get-out-of-jail-or-lawsuit card to, uh, in their arrogance and hubris, begin censoring viewpoints they don't like, many times pro-life and conservative Mm -hmm. and Christian views, and even all the way up to censoring the president of the United States. So here we've got this sweetheart deal, Section 230, right? So we're still getting all of the bad stuff on the Internet. Well, at the same time, they are enjoying unqualified immunity. But the FTC and the FCC are also mentioned in the executive order. And for those of us who don't follow the purpose, the mission of these regulatory agencies, tell me a little bit about their role in all of this. 
Yeah, uh, in terms of Internet, and let's hone it down to that, the Federal Communications Commission usually regulates things like television, uh, radio, uh, and telecommunications, uh, satellite transmissions, and so forth, uh, broadcast. In other words, not the Internet. They have a very, very narrow jurisdiction uh, when it comes to the Internet. FTC, Federal Trade Commission, has a, a little bit larger jurisdiction because they can actually regulate websites with regard to false advertising. But they also have very limited jurisdiction. What the president has done in this EO, this executive order, is said, look, is, it's time for the FCC and the FTC to take a hard look at some of the abuses of Section 230 that's led to this monopoly of a handful of organizations and, and Silicon Valley companies controlling the vast majority of online viewpoints, information, and data, and find out, is there a way to rein them in, basically? So the spirit and mission of the executive order really could not have come at a more appropriate time, and there's no one, I think, who would be intellectually honest and saying anything other than these fact check labels were a form of censorship against a sitting president of the United States. So clearly he recognizes that there have been thousands and thousands of incidents presented to his office as evidence of the fact that big tech has a decidedly left wing bias. Mark Zuckerberg himself has indicated in open hearings in Congress. You and John Schweppe of the American Principles Project co-authored a piece in the federal earlier this year on precisely this issue on social media censorship, and you talked about Section 230. Do you think there's a workable solution here? Yeah, first of all, by way of background, this is not a sudden occurrence. I've been tracking uh, this uh, arrogance in viewpoint censorship coming out of a handful of these big tech companies like Facebook and Twitter, uh, Amazon and Apple uh, and Google uh, for a decade. And even to the point where recently, over the last couple of years, the heads of these uh, titanic, uh, monolithic, and monopolistic uh, companies have been hauled into Congress and have been uh, criticized by both parties. Um, it's a nonpartisan issue, really, about viewpoint and free speech mm-hmm. uh, being suppressed. And yet they have continued. In fact, from my perspective, they've even ratcheted up. Their viewpoint censorship just spoke to a major a pro-life journalistic site today that has been blocked and they've been throttled as a result of their views. So this is exponentially increased. So what can we do about it? I admire the president putting a flashlight on this issue mm-hmm. for the American people. I really do. But I think the bottom line that I'd like to see, and this is what John Schweppe and I said in the Federalist article that we wrote, it's time to take the blinders off and take – Section 230 immunity away from these big tech companies unless they start looking like they're ruled by the First Amendment, which technically doesn't apply to private companies. Right. But if they were to use the First Amendment as a as a kind of a, a measuring stick for how they were going to reinforce free speech, we'd back off. But I have to tell you that they aren't going to do that. They haven't done that. And so if they don't do that, then they should get their civil immunity removed and they should have uh, private rights of action in terms of lawsuits permitted for those who lose their voice on these monopolistic platforms. So you've got about 30 seconds left. Do you think we're going to be seeing more censorship as we head into this very hotly contested election year? Sarah, we've already seen uh, some uh, quotations 
and uh, surveillance uh, video and information from a high executive in Google, who, by the way, was uh, the person in charge of the, you know, the ethics and, and transparency part of Google, saying, we're never going to let this election happen again like it did in 2016. In other words, do everything we can to make sure Trump doesn't get reelected. Mm -hmm. uh, Mark Zuckerberg said uh, when he testified ahead of Facebook, uh, Silicon Valley is extremely left-leaning. That's not going to change. So, yes, I think it's going to be something that may well be intended to affect the results of this election. Coming up next, FRC President Tony Perkins on the tragic death of George Floyd on Washington Watch. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I am Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony on this Friday afternoon, the 29th of May 2020. And many of us have been watching the protests that have erupted across the country over the death of George Floyd, a black man who suffocated when he was pinned to the ground by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. And just hours ago, a Minnesota state official announced that Chauvin has been arrested and taken into custody on charges of third degree murder and manslaughter. So joining me now in many capacities, specifically that he is a former police officer, is FRC President Tony Perkins. Tony, I love talking to you. Welcome. Well, thanks, Sarah. I had to, I had to catch myself. I almost wanted to bring us back in from the break. But I, <laughs> it's tempting. Listen, this is this is a incredibly divisive, violative video that we've yeah. seen. We've seen things that just strike at the very heart of who we are as human beings. We're seeing things that indicate police brutality is a widespread notion. As a former police officer, you've seen the video. Give us a sense of what your reaction was when you saw it. Well, there's been a reason I haven't talked about it this week. I wanted to wait and, and get as much information as I can, because Proverbs... 1817 says that the first one to plead his case or his call seems right until the neighbor comes and examines him. And I think one thing I have added, it's been a number of years since I've been on the road as a police officer, but I, I spent uh, about 10 years on the road and I've stayed affiliated with law enforcement, um, you know, probably total 30 years. So I've been around it and I understand that a snapshot of a picture does not tell the whole story. Now, that said, I will say that the snapshot that we had of Chauvin tells us a lot. Number one, I have never seen the tactic that he used of putting his knee on the head, on the neck of a handcuffed individual as a tactic that was used in training. I was never trained mm -hmm. to do that. In fact, uh, th that is a very dangerous. You stay away from the neck. Um, and this guy had 19 years on the department. I think he had had some other warnings about uh, ex excessive use of force. But I do think you've got to look at this in the context. I, I was been trying to see what happened leading up to that, and it, uh, it, there's no question there was excessive force here. I, I do think that there are some that try to exploit these for um, racial purposes to, to further divide this country. Now, we don't know his motives. I do know that he was poorly trained, apparently. Even though yeah. he had 19 years, his actions were were not appropriate. Um, 
But what was his mo- what were his motives? We don't know that, and I think to assign motives to that only brings about the result that we've seen the last couple of days in Minneapolis, the riot thing, which, by the way, I think is is also wrong for officials to just to step back. And I know that's kind of a new tactic that was adopted during the Obama years to step back and let people burn cities and destroy private property. I think that's mm-hmm. wrong because yeah. they have an obligation to protect the private property of those citizens who had their property, those businesses. They've had their businesses destroyed. I will say this. I've watched the uh, uh, Melvin Carter, who is the mayor of St. Paul, take a very reasoned approach to this compared to the mayor of Minneapolis. Um, You know, they have the curfew they've called for tonight. He's called for Mm -hmm. an hour of, of prayer calling the city to prayer. And he's, he's a young black man, man as mayor, and it seems very uh, reasoned in his approach in this, saying that, you know, these police officers have a difficult job. And, and let me add this, Sarah. I understand about police brutality and excessive use of force. I lost my commission as a police officer because I spoke out about mm. police brutality. Uh, it, it happened uh, back in the early 90s with uh, Operation Rescue, where there were police officers who were using excessive force and ended up in federal court, and, and they ended up settling, but there were charges that were brought for uh, excessive use of force. And so I understand that, and I think officers have an obligation to speak out when a department allows those types of things to happen. So I'm very sensitive and understand that police officers abuse their authority. But I also understand that there are many men and women in uniform that are keeping our cities safe, and it is not helpful to have those outside voices come in and exploit this for political purposes like we see happen over and over again. Does this officer and the others involved need to be held accountable? Absolutely. But assigning motive, which divides cities, communities, and a country, without having the full knowledge of all the information, I believe is just as wrong. So we now know that this officer has been charged with third-degree murder and manslaughter, two separate charges, and obviously the prosecutor's got to bring enough evidence to be able to elicit a warrant from the judge or the magistrate. So one exists now. Do you think now that he's been taken into custody that we can be helpful for any kind of healing or reconciliation in the city of Minneapolis? I, I think it's going to take a lot more uh, just because we see that every time one of these erupts, you know, we had one a couple of years ago, well, it's been almost four years ago in Baton Rouge where we had shootings uh, here and we've had um, uh, you know we've had the incidents in New York and in Boston we've had other places where we've had these things occur it shows that we have deep unresolved issues in mm-hmm. America that divide us and 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 I'll tell you Sarah the only thing I think can bring us together as a nation is this is this is spiritual in, yes. in a many ways, and I think there needs to be a sense of repentance, a sense of forgiveness. Um, but I think there are those that continue to, to to stir up a festering wound every time something like this happens, uh, and it's unfortunate. Will we ever get to where we need to be as a nation? I hope we do, but mm-hmm. it's going to be led by our spiritual leaders, not by uh, political opportunists. Tony, thanks for talking to me today. What a great perspective. Coming up, we've got some news, some developments, very big developments from the Department of Education. A new ruling that policies allowing biological males to compete against biological girls violates Title IX. After months, we now have a decision. I've got Doreen Denny of Concerned Women for America and Christiana Holcomb from Alliance Defending Freedom. Coming up next on Washington Watch.
As coronavirus restrictions begin to ease, many Americans are grappling with how to adapt to the changing times. The last few months have transformed how worshipers think about church and how they are fed spiritually. While many churches are conducting services through live streams, drive-in services, and other means, questions still remain. What practical steps can we take? Are current restrictions appropriate? Do these restrictions violate the Constitution or religious freedom protections? Family Research Council has a new publication discussing religious liberty issues and offering practical guidelines for how churches and houses of worship can begin to operate as our country opens back up. Visit frc.org slash church guidelines to view this resource and learn more. As always, visit frc.org slash church for our full list of resources for churches in the time of coronavirus. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I am Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony on this 29th of May, 2020. TonyPerkins.com is our podcast website. And don't forget to download the Stand Firm app on your smartphone. Well, we've got some great news today. The U.S. Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights has found a Connecticut policy which enabled male students identifying as female to participate in athletic competitions against biological girls was, in fact, a violation of Title IX after conducting a several-months-long investigation. Now, the investigation, as you might remember, was prompted by a request from Alliance Defending Freedom, who represents the families of three female high school athletes affected by Connecticut's athletic conference policy. Joining me now to discuss the ruling is Doreen Denny, VP for Government Affairs for Concerned Women for America. Doreen, welcome to Washington Watch. Well, a pleasure to be with you, Sarah. So CWA has really done great work on this front. You all have been at the tip of the spear as the nation's premier conservative women's organization. I'm very sort of excited, and I'm encouraged by not only the opportunity to speak with you, but really this decision, because this is really a wealth of good news from OCR, isn't it? It is. It is good news. And, uh, you know, for those of us that have been in this battle for a while, it felt like a long time coming. But it's a really important signal, and uh, not only for these women athletes, these female athletes who uh, have 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 faced the injustice over the last two seasons and, and the last years of their high school years, unfortunately, um, against uh, unfair competition that never should be happening when biological males who have a physical advantage, physiological advantage, always will are now allowed to compete in female sports. And so, so we're hoping that this is definitely a warning shot. Uh, across the culture to recognize that 
female sports need to be for women, and uh, and and it's very important to maintain that principle under Title IX. It's not mm-hmm. to say that athletes who may have transgender identities can't be athletes, but it shouldn't be happening uh, in women's sports. Right, right. And the notion has been brought up of providing a separate transgender league for these individuals, and yet that hasn't proved sufficient to sort of quell the debate on this. It should be as simple as Title IX protecting biological girls, period. Now, we anticipate seeing reverberations in this at the college level, and CWA has filed its own complaint. Tell me about that. We did, yes. In fact, it's it's kind of a sister complaint at the college level. Last year, there was a, a an athlete, a male, biologically male athlete who had competed three previous seasons as a female, as a as a man, in the women's competition uh, for Franklin Pierce University, and ended up winning a national NCAA title in the 400 meter women's hurdles. And so, you know, on the shelf of a of a uh, of a college is as a, a a trophy that it was won by a, a biological male athlete in in female sports, and we just see that as a complete injustice. We filed the complaint on behalf of women athletes across America. Um, we don't believe it's it, it's justified. We think that it is a complete and clear violation of the purpose of Title IX, which mm-hmm. was um, which was enacted over 40 years ago now, on so that women athletes, that females had equal educational opportunities and benefits in athletics and education, and that has always meant binary male and female right. distinction. And um, and we've seen yet another situation that happened over the last year, and um, also happens to be in cross country and, and indoor track, uh, uh, an athlete that won the uh, Big Sky Conference Championship um, in February uh, from the University of Montana. And incidentally, those young, uh, uh, two of those athletes that uh, ended up facing competition against this um, uh, biological male athlete have now uh, joined an, an Alliance Defending Freedom lawsuit that is having to defend mm. Iowa, I mean Idaho's law um, that was passed to protect women's sports. Now, we're not surprised to see that the ACLU has already indicated that they are going to take this to court. They've deemed this another attack from the Trump administration on trans students. There's obviously much to be said about this, but narrowing it down to its most basic issue, and obviously they'll argue that this is a violation of equal protection. If we take the letter of the law, and you mentioned it earlier, 40 years ago Title IX was passed, it violates the spirit of the law to bring in biological males, it would seem to me that this would be a cut and dry case. I'm encouraged by the Department of Education Office of Civil Rights' disposition. We're anticipating it will be the same for the complaint that CWA has filed. Do you think that this is a challenge that's going to stand up in court? Uh, I think that it would be difficult, but it might be informed by other things that we're going to face, even from the Supreme Court in a, in a case that deals with employment that has mm-hmm. some very similar uh, implications in terms of the status of women. Uh, right. The other thing that is that was so uh, crucial and really, I think, did lead to what the Office of Civil Rights has done here is that Attorney General Barr, uh, William Barr, issued a statement of interest in the in the compatible lawsuit that happened in the Connecticut case. It's still ongoing, and frankly, I think it's still necessary in some regard. But the Department of Justice was very clear in saying that Connecticut's policy allowing for um, males who identify as female to participate in women's sports turned Title IX on its head. 
Yeah. It was was not even close. And that statement, which is a 13-page document that goes through the law, it goes through the court, you know, precedent, it goes through court decisions, is just packed with all of the arguments that I think uh, uh, any court would have to take very seriously in uh, in trying to uh, challenge or, or to have this be overturned. So we've got 18 states and Washington, D.C. that currently allow males saying that they are females to compete in girls' high school sporting events. What do we see next? Do you think we see a series of legal challenges, or will we see sort of the trickle-down of common sense and the OCR's ruling in elimination of these policies sort of whole cloth? Well, I'm I'm hoping for the latter, but I do think that it's going to depend on how the Department of Education chooses to enforce this. Uh, That's one Mm -hmm. of the things that's yet to be understood is what the enforcement will be. Will it be a loss of federal funding? If so, I could see a lot of schools trying to march, you know, to get get in line here. Uh, Will it be just a change in their policy that, you know, just kind of lets them off on certain levels? I don't know. You know, I mean, I think, again, the hook, which we've always said, is the Trump administration has the capacity here to do the right thing, which is to um, protect women's sports for female athletes. And they can do that because we have the civil rights law on our side and Mm -hmm. should have it on our side. And if they can enforce that um, under federal law, uh, under the federal funding um, hook that we that they have for every school in America, then that's really going to be the the, lo- the loudest message that can be sent across the country and really force these other states to, um, like I said, get get in line here. I think this is sort of a function of the modern left body politic in trying to redefine legislation that has stood for decades, 40, 50, 60 years, that is suddenly inconvenient based on the notion that things like biological reality have now become legal fictions, which I think to me, to this day, I still find absolutely shocking that we are now at the point where we have to debate what constitutes sex in federal legislation. I find myself, as the mother of a teenage daughter, particularly impassioned by what I see as a right outcome here. I know you feel the same as well. I'm encouraged by the fact that because we have a current complaint brought by CWA on the NCAA basis, that maybe we can see this now sort of setting the stage for what might be a future clarification for what these athletic guidelines need to look like. Do you think that this is warranting executive guidance overall, not just a completion, a disposition of the complaint itself in both this case and in yours, but also executive guidance, making sure to clarify what interscholastic athletics must look like from a sex basis. I I do. And in fact, we've been pushing for that for over a year now. Uh, Unfortunately, what happened when the Trump administration rescinded Obama's policy, which really set so much of this in motion, they Mm -hmm. didn't go quite far enough. They still allowed for state and localities to sort of make these judgments, and they didn't give a clear understanding on the federal law related to Title IX, and that was a mistake. Uh, we could we could have these situations prevented, um, but what happened was we we haven't had the vigilance around that, and so I, I we continue to push for clarity for for the the clarity uh, that is as clear as we believe that Attorney General Barr has made it with the Department of Justice, but to have that be something that is um, sent out to every school in the country mm-hmm. to say this is the law, and yes. until we get that, I think we're going to end up having to fight these cases. And, um, and fight the state laws that are, you know, that are, um, 
that are out there already. And the NCAA, who has its own policy, and the International Olympic Committee, by the way, we have a petition to save, you know, women's athletics in the Olympics. Yes. Yep. Uh, for the exact same reason, because, again, these standards that are set through these governing bodies for sports really do trickle down to the pressure that you're seeing now, um, even at the even at the school level uh, with these with uh, with other with athletics across the board. And so all of it needs to change. And we yes. have to really we're, we're just tackling it from so many angles right now. Um, it just seems like every angle is, is important in, a, in and of itself. I would agree. Doreen Denny, Concerned Women for America. I'm going to switch gears now. I'm joined by Christiana Holcomb, Legal Counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom, who actually represents the three families who are the families of the three Connecticut athletes, female student athletes, for whom the complaint is based. Christiana, thank you so much for joining us. I know you have had a super busy press day. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. So were you as excited about this as Doreen and I were when you got the ruling from OCR? Oh, absolutely. We were delighted. It's a very exciting and hopeful step in the right direction. Now, Doreen and I talked a little bit about the fact that we don't quite know yet what the enforcement mechanism is going to be on this particular OCR disposition, on this ruling. Do you have a sense of where the Department of Education might go next in terms of actually making this applicable and providing guidance to schools nationwide? You know, we really don't. Um, as the letter of impending enforcement itself says, they could either proceed to try administrative proceedings to suspend federal dollars to those Connecticut public schools and athletic associations, or referral to the U.S. Department of Justice for further enforcement action through litigation. Um, but I would say at a broader level, it would be incredibly helpful to actually receive guidance, published guidance, regulations from the U.S. Department of Education to school districts and universities across the nation to mm-hmm. make very clear what they said in this enforcement letter, which is that, look, it violates Title IX to allow males to compete in the girls' category. Yes. Now, when this decision was passed down, I'm assuming you had a conversation with Selena and Alana and Chelsea, the three high school athletes that you've represented not only in this complaint, but also in the federal litigation that is sort of part and parcel of this entire story. Tell me what their reactions were. Oh, they are completely thrilled. They could not be more excited. Um, I've heard from several of them that they feel validated Mm. that the U.S. government agency charged with enforcing Title IX agrees with them and has underscored their argument. That's really, that's very meaningful to them. Um, you know, Chelsea specifically mentioned that she feels like her losses have meant something. You know, yes. she has lost four state championship titles and countless other awards, two New England awards. And just to be able to look back on her athletic career, the entire four years she's competed against biological male athletes, and to be able to look back at that and say, okay, my my losses and the public stand that I have taken actually have meant something. And that yes. just is really encouraging to see. So I mentioned briefly the attendant federal lit- litigation that goes alongside this, but there was a recent and very interesting development, and your law firm had to actually make a motion to disqualify the judge. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Unfortunately, I cannot talk about that. But what I will say is we were also very encouraged that the United States Department of Justice 
has filed a statement of interest in support of our female athletes in that litigation. Mm -hmm. And again, they underscored what we all know and understand, which is that biological sex, that, you know, the Title IX protections were intended to be on the basis of biological sex, and that means male and female. And so, again, our clients were just very encouraged to see the weight of the DOJ come in on their side of the case, and, too, to see the, the personal statements from Attorney General William Barr in their support. Yes, absolutely. So you have two agencies, both of which have said, we recognize that the plain letter of the law protects these young women in their sex separateness and their biological identity. Do you anticipate now, based on this ruling, that it might potentially change the outcome of litigation? You know, I would hope that it would have some impact on the litigation, but at this point it's just still too early to tell what that impact will be. We're, uh, we're very encouraged to see such a great ruling out of OCR. I think many of us believe that this was not only the right outcome, but the common sense outcome. I think some of us anticipated yes. we would get the results sooner. Did this follow a timeline that you thought it might based on the factual nature presented? You know, it's really difficult to assess how quickly these administrative processes will, will go. Um, of course, we have certainly hoped it would proceed much more quickly. We would have loved to have seen um, a decision and fi- actually a final resolution in time for our girls to have competed in the indoor season on a fair and level playing field. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, that just was not the case. So regardless, we're excited about the eventual outcome and the, the decision letter that we did receive. Well, I have to tell you that this is good news, I think, going forward for all teenage athletes, all female athletes, all athletes in any scholastic athletic participation. I was just telling Doreen, I am the mother of a 13-year-old girl who's very athletic, and this is a harbinger, I think, of good things to come from this Department of Education. We are hopeful for clarifying guidance from them in addition to the disposition of this particular claim and into the disposition of the claim from CWA at the NCAA level that we will still wait for. Christiana Holcomb from Alliance Defense Freedom Legal Counsel for the three girls and their families have been my guest. Good news today. Hope you have a great weekend, and we'll see you again on Monday on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. 